You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which different representations of war have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St Andrews. Today's episode is a bit of a departure from our normal schedule. We were contacted last week by a journalist based in Afghanistan who wants to share the story of what's been happening in his country over the past few decades at some significant risk to his life to help the wider world visualize and understand what is unfolding right now. Out of concern for his safety, we're not going to publicize his name. And I want to mention for the benefit of listeners that we recorded this interview on the evening of the 25th of August, 2021, with just a few days to go until the deadline for all US troops to withdraw from Afghanistan. At a time when thousands of people were still trying to get to the airport in Kabul to get on evacuation flights and leave for their own safety. Already the situation has moved on in tragic and terrifying ways. I began the conversation by explaining why we were grateful that the journalist got in touch and asked to talk to us. So thank you very much for reaching out and offering to come on our podcast today. One of the key goals of the Visualizing War project is to hear from a wide range of voices on conflict, particularly from people who've been impacted by it and people who find it difficult to be heard. It's probably safe to say that most listeners to this podcast have only heard about the conflict in Afghanistan through Western media or who predominantly heard about it through Western media. And it's fair to say, I think, that most of us have formed some quite limited, quite narrow habits of understanding and visualising it, informed by Western politicians, by the international media, but not by Afghans themselves. You've been reporting on war and terrorism in Afghanistan for the best part of a decade, So I wonder if you can start by telling us what you've been trying to communicate over that time and what audiences you've been trying to reach. Thank you. First of all, I'm very thankful for you that you have given me an opportunity to share the various aspects of the current catastrophe in Afghanistan. I have worked as a journalist for seven years in Afghanistan and uh, I reported war, terrorism, victims of war, and the diseases of war because there are lots of diseases. WHO has released its report in which they mentioned that almost 60% of ones have been facing psychological issues and psychological diseases because of the four decades constant war. And there is lots of skin diseases and there are herring issues, lots of issues of war in Afghanistan. And recently I have covered one issue where one woman widowed three times. Her first husband uh, killed by the Taliban and second husband killed in the blast in the Kandahar and the third one also killed by the Taliban. So I heard and focused very unprecedented and shocking history, uh, shocking stories of the world. I have tremendously covered the war issues in Afghanistan. And uh, secondly, I wanted to aware of once about uh, the, the catastrophes and the devastations of war. And it was my strive to create and uh, boost environment for peace uh, in Afghanistan and to, to change the mind of Afghans so that they will participate in the peace process. They were my audience. And on the other side, I wanted uh, to communicate with the international community, particularly those who make policies like uh, journalists, policymakers, decision makers, politicians. Uh, these were my audience. I wanted to, to reach my journalistic work to them. They make policies for the development of Afghanistan so that they may create an environment for peace in Afghanistan. But unfortunately, I am failed and I didn't convince here in Afghanistan people and I didn't convince particularly those who decide war and peace, they were my audience, but I am failed in my work. And what you just said there, you know, is heartbreaking. You're facing precisely the opposite situation from the one you were trying to get to. But what you've just said as well really 
testifies to the power and the importance of media, of journalists like you, in telling the full story of conflict, individual people suffering, everything from blasts to skin problems to mental health problems, the many different impacts of war. And also, as you've just said, this is something that other journalists we've talked to, not from Afghanistan, but elsewhere, have also talked about the role that journalists can play in peace building and conflict resolution in talking both to people within their own country and international um, leaders and, and politicians and so on in trying to move towards peace and deliver some kind of resolution to the conflict. Do you think that the past few decades of conflict, the past few years of conflict in Afghanistan have been well understood by the international community? Uh, no, I think the international community, particularly the entire West and USSR, played a very negative role in Afghanistan. And uh, the current four decades of constant war is because of the West and USSR. When the USSR invaded Afghanistan four decades ago, at that time, the U.S. and its Western allies, uh, they trained uh, Mujahideen, they equipped Mujahideen, they funded Mujahideen, provided armed technology to Mujahideen to fight against the USSR. And Afghanistan became the center of Cold War between two superpowers. On one side, the U.S. wanted to become a sole superpower of the world. On the other hand, the USSR wanted to become a sole superpower of the world. Uh, in, the, in the nine years of the constant war, almost one million Afghans killed in that war. The entire Afghanistan devastated and uh, Kabul and entire cities of Afghanistan destroyed in that war. Almost five million refugees went to Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Iran, Pakistan, and other countries, and still millions are living in Europe and uh, US. So when the USSR defeated by Mujahideen, those Mujahideen that supported by the, the West and US, when the USSR left Afghanistan, at the same time, it was the responsibility of the US and its allies to resolve the Afghan issue, to make a negotiation among the Afghan conflicted groups to re-establish and to remake the Afghan institutions like agriculture, army, and other institutions when the USSR left Afghanistan, at the same time, the US didn't perform its responsibility. They destroyed Afghanistan, both superpowers, and they went without playing any positive role. The same war that changed into civil war, the Taliban emerged with the support of Pakistan and other countries. They made their government, and the same Taliban provided sanctuaries and safe havens to Al-Qaeda and other international terrorist organizations. And those, at that time, Afghanistan became the center of international terrorism. Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda orchestrated the 9-11 attacks from the Taliban governed Afghanistan. The terrorism unfolded and spread across the entire world. And, and lastly, the terrorism reached to UK, reached to France, Germany, even within one day in the 9-11 attack, which orchestrated in Afghanistan, around 3,000 Americans killed within one day after the US and its allies again came to Afghanistan and overthrew the Taliban government and they re-established the Afghan institutions during the past 20 years. There was a war between Taliban and Afghan forces in which thousands of people, tens of thousands of Afghans killed in that war. It was not the war between Afghans, it was the war 
between Afghans and international terrorists. Those terrorists who planned 9-11 attacks, attacks against the UK, against other countries, the Afghan forces limited international terrorism just to Afghanistan. Finally, after fighting for 20 years, the Afghan forces and Afghans fought for 20 years against terrorism. The entire world betrayed Afghanistan, deceived Afghanistan. The entire world handed Afghanistan to the same terrorists who unfolded terrorism in the entire world. So now I think this will not only destroy Afghanistan, the terrorism will not just boost in Afghanistan. It will again, like the previous time when the Taliban established their extreme regime in the 90s, the terrorism unfolded in the entire world. And this time, the same scenario, the same history will repeat in the world. It will affect Afghans, it will affect the entire world and humanity. You've just given an incredibly clear overview, and it, it absolutely chimes with what various other people, some on our podcast and some elsewhere, have been saying. For example, Mike Martin, who's been commenting on the long and complex history of conflict in Afghanistan and the way in which Afghanistan was a pawn, was sort of a victim, as you said earlier, between international players using Afghanistan as a battleground in the Cold War. The US responsibility and the USSR's responsibility in Afghanistan go back a very long way, long before recent events and recent years. And the sense that Afghanistan has been plagued by war and terrorism for so long, and now everything is imploding again, because different international players have stepped away way just at this moment. Can you just catch us up a little bit to the present now? Obviously, the withdrawal of international troops from Afghanistan has been planned for some time. And I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about what the last 18 months or the last year has been like in Afghanistan, as people were sort of building up to that withdrawal. What has the atmosphere been like? What were people expecting to happen? How much worry was there? How much hope was there that um, that things wouldn't go so badly wrong? How did the people you know imagine this transition would play out? The Afghans were expecting that there is humanity and sympathies in the international politics, but the international politics, there is no humanity, there is no sympathies. Politics is very cruel and vicious things. We Afghans, uh, we were expecting from the entire world that they will not hand the future of Afghanistan to the terrorists. But the same thing has happened. We were expecting humanity. We were expecting sympathies. But there, but there is no humanity in the politics. There were almost 1.5 million Afghans were working with the Ashraf Ghani's administrations in the various departments of that administration, particularly the Afghan army that were fighting against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and other terrorists in the 34 provinces of Afghanistan. They are facing very harsh tragedy. They are receiving threats, keeping one place to other place. They are living in the safe houses in order to secure their lives. Similarly, the whole 1.5 million people that work with the previous administration, they feel fear, they don't have any future. And they are just counting the moment of their life and just waiting for their demise. The, the people who actively played role against the Taliban in the previous administration, the journalists that work with the international media, women rights activists, politicians, political activists, and those historians who wrote against the Taliban, every person want to leave Afghanistan. There is a huge and unprecedented human presidented brain drain which is underway in Afghanistan. The whole intelligentsia, highly educated people, including 
professor, lecturer, sociologist, political scientist, pilots, engineers, doctors, they are leaving Afghanistan. No one wants to stay in Afghanistan in the current situation. And unfortunately, this is very regrettable. The countries who claim that they are spreading humanity and they are claiming the human civilization, they are like US, UK, France, Germany, Canada, they are just giving and providing visas to those people who work with their army interpreter, who work with their government projects, and they are not giving visas to the journalists, to the armed personnel, army personnel, to women rights activists, to those of ones who uh, played very active role against the terrorists. They were securing UK. The Afghan army was not just protecting Afghanistan, they were protecting UK, US, higher world. Now these countries are just giving visas to those people who worked with them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, those people like particularly journalists, political activists, politicians, and the people who very actively played role against the Taliban, particularly Three Lake Afghan army personnel, they are receiving more threats than those people who work with the foreign countries. So I request from them, please provide visas to those Afghan as well, or else we will see unprecedented genocide of highly educated people in Afghanistan. So now... So I know you have said that there are no words sufficient to capture the scale of the catastrophe that's unfolding and the humanitarian crisis, but in that short description you've just given us, you are really helping us to visualize not only what's going on now, but what it might mean for Afghanistan's future, for the people of Afghanistan, and in fact, for the wider world because we're all impacted by this to to a lesser extent, obviously, than than the people right now on the front line in Afghanistan, but we are all impacted. It is so important to hear your perspective as a critical counterbalance to some of the other narratives out there. And, And to be reminded, for example, that the Afghan security forces have for years been fighting to protect the wider world, not just Afghanistan, from acts of terrorism. I think one thing I would like to ask is how much of what we at our distance are seeing in the media is representative of what's going on on the ground. So the images that are flooding my news feeds at the moment are of crowds trying desperately to get through to the airport, despite Taliban threats. Can you tell us a bit about what the atmosphere is like right now, um, what it's like more generally on the streets of Kabul? As I told you, every person, every educated person, they don't see any future in Afghanistan, and they, they are just waiting for their demise and their murder by the terrorists. So it is the human nature. No one wants to be killed. So in this situation, every Afghan want to flee Afghanistan. There are not 10,000, there are millions of Afghans who don't like Afghanistan that governed by the terrorists. You are saying the cities of Afghanistan, the Taliban, cruelties, they are beating, they are torturing journalists, businessmen, they are not allowing uh, women to go to university. The women's uh, get up is completely changed. Kabul was one of the most developed and civilized cities in the world. There were very modernized and stylish culture. Now you are just saying there is no girl and no woman in the city of Kabul. Even no woman can go out of their home. Mm. I think it is my personal figure because I saw entire Afghanistan, there is no any institutions have lost their duties and job mm-hmm. after the Taliban captured Afghanistan because lots of women were working with the NGOs, with the foreign projects, with the different departments of the previous administrations. And even lots of women were working with the Afghan media. Mm-hmm. And Many journalists, hundreds of journalists has recently left Afghanistan and thousands of 
women, when they went to their offices, the Taliban just told them, go home. And now the regime has changed and you are not allowed to, to come to office. And mm. millions of women, they are deprived from their educational rights. So in this kind of situation, every woman and every man, they want to flee Afghanistan. Many people who don't have any passport because the passport offices, the entire departments of the governments are closed in Afghanistan. Mm. There are many people who don't have passport and they reach to Kabul and they are asking from the US and the UK officials then please help us and take out uh, us from the Afghanistan. So this kind of situation has created lots of troubles in the Kabul uh, airport. And the second thing is that the international community didn't provide any time limit to those Afghans who actively fought against the terrorists. They should provide it at least 10, uh, 15 days to equip for their departure. When the Taliban reached to Kabul at that time, they international community and the countries like UK, US, and Canada, they started departure. Mm-hmm. That reason created this catastrophe in Kabul. On the other hand, the Taliban are in the streets of Kabul. They are burning the passports, the visas of Afghans in order that these Afghans should not leave Afghanistan. And then they take revenge from them. They are not yesterday. We saw the press conference of Zabiullah Mujahid. He told to Afghans that we are just foreigners to the airport and they would not leave Afghans to go to airport. And they already control all highways to Kabul and not leaving any Afghans to left Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's really important to hear the numbers that you're quoting there. In the UK at the moment, the news is full of figures, counting up the thousands of people who've been successfully evacuated. But those few thousand are such a small number compared to the figures that you're talking about, the millions of people who are impacted by this in Afghanistan in such profound ways. As all sorts of aspects of society are under threat, women, journalists, all sorts of people who've worked for the government or foreign security forces, even historians who've written critically about the Taliban, all these millions of people whose lives are now at risk. And it's very, very important that we hear about those unknown, unnamed millions and, and not just the thousands who've been making it through the airport gates or across borders to safety. I wonder if I can ask you a little bit more about the media. Um, I know that there's been a very flourishing media scene in Afghanistan for the last decade or so. And you yourself have been working as a journalist for years, as you've said, writing critically about local and national and international politics. How is the media operating right now? Are media organisations still functioning? How free are they to comment on what's going on? We're beginning to hear reports of journalists being beaten by while filming on the streets, but perhaps you can give us a clearer picture of what things are really like right now. The era of freedom of expression has already ended in Afghanistan. You can't critique the Taliban. You can't critique because they have guns and bullets in their hands. And we are seeing brutalities and barbarism of the Taliban in the the cities of Afghanistan. But lots of journalists, I think, uh, even before capturing Kabul, 10, 100 journalists before capturing Kabul by the Taliban, they left Afghanistan. I think very few journalists left in Kabul. Mm -hmm. The, The journalists like Bilal Sarwari, you know, he left Afghanistan. The, the second journalist, Zarmina, left and Shabnam Dawran. Every journalist that were working in the media, they have intentions to leave Afghanistan. And they, those journalists like Hasiba Atakpal, she was working in the city in Kabul and covering the issues. The Taliban captured the camera and uh, fired on her team. So now no journalist in the Kabul city and the Afghanistan can cover the issues in there. So there is a complete ban mm-hmm. on the media and you can't 
reveal the truth on the brutalities which is underway in the various part of the Afghanistan and you can't cover political issues. On the other hand, we are saying just Pakistani journalists who have reached to Kabul, they are covering the issues. And it seems like the official spokesmen of the Taliban, they are just praising the Taliban and uh, striving to make their image positive. So <laughs> no Afghan journalist is able to cover Afghanistan now. You said earlier in our conversation what an important role of free media, a critical press can play, not just in reporting on conflict, but in helping to facilitate conflict resolution and foster peace. And actually, this is something that we've talked about in another podcast with Tony Borden, the founder and director of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Um, That institute has been working to support journalists in Afghanistan, among other places, for the last decade. So it's it's obviously very worrying that journalists in Afghanistan now are not feeling able to cover what's going on without fear of reprisals. And, and it is certainly clear um, from the press reports that we're getting that, that freedom of speech is becoming very limited, um, that there are some critical voices still managing to break through, both from professional journalists like you who've stayed, but at huge risk, of course, and also from a few citizen journalists using their smartphones smuggling footage out. But what we're seeing is that a lot of these stories are now several weeks old. They're very hard to verify. So there is a real sense that what's going on is becoming less and less visible, more and more secret. At a time when accountability and visibility are more important than ever, it's a very brave thing that you're doing right now in talking so frankly to me about what you're witnessing. I I wonder if you're willing, if you can just give us your view of how Afghanistan has got to the place where it is now with such a quick takeover by the Taliban, Just a bit of analysis from you of what has happened effectively over the last 18 months and why things moved so surprisingly quickly um, in recent weeks. There are uh, many issues behind this scenario. The first issue was that the U.S. was constantly giving deadlines to the Taliban. And when the U.S. gave the Taliban, the Taliban understood that they already defeated the U.S., Mm -hmm. And the Taliban are so proud, they are saying that in the last century, they defeated two superpowers. They defeated the British in the 90s, then their Mujahideen defeated the USSR, and now the US on the war on the defeat. The deadlines were basically encouraging the Taliban for the military. On the other hand, the US and the West, they didn't understand the, 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 the psychology of the Taliban. I think knowing and understanding the psychology of your enemies is very essential in the war. That was the the one reason. The second reason was that there was one agreement between the Trump administration and the Taliban in which the Trump administration pledged two commitments. The first one was that the U.S. would withdraw its force from Afghanistan until May of 2021. And the second one was that the Trump administration pledged with the Taliban that it would convince the Afghan government to release 6,000 prisoners of the Taliban that were the main strategist policymakers in war veterans. When the U.S. fulfilled these two commitments, the Taliban commitment was that it would reduce violence, which would lead to ceasefire. The second one was that the Taliban will end its relations with the Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. And the third one was that the Taliban would sincerely participate in the inter-Afghan talks and resolve the Afghan issue by negotiation. Mm-hmm. On one side, the U.S. completely fulfilled its commitments. On the other side, the Taliban didn't fulfill a single pledge. So the main issue that the Trump administration agreement was conditional. The Trump was pressurizing the Taliban to fulfill your commitments. When the Taliban killed a U.S. soldier, the Trump postponed its 
peace talk with the Taliban. Mm-hmm. But when Biden became the president of America, he announced unconditional withdrawal. He didn't pressurize the Taliban to fulfill your commitments. This was the second issue. The third issue was that Afghan government was not expecting from Biden that it would abruptly announce the the withdrawal of U.S. and other NATO forces. The Afghan government was not ready for the current scenario. On the other side, the Taliban and its sponsor, those countries that were supporting the Taliban, that were providing human resources to the Taliban, they were completely ready uh, for this kind of scenario. The, the, the fourth issue was that it was not just the U.S. forces left Afghanistan. The U.S. intelligence community entirely left Afghanistan. Even those contractors that were repairing the Afghan air capacity, they left Afghanistan. Those contractors that were maintaining the Afghan helicopters, the, the war flights, they whole left Afghanistan and the Afghan air cap- capacity entirely collapsed. Even the US and other NATO forces, they take out their softwares from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. These were the main reasons. And the last main reason was that the international community fought against the Taliban, but they didn't take a single century in the past 20 years. The same centuries were providing huge human resources to the Taliban, and even the international community didn't pressurize those countries to stop supporting the Taliban. These were the main issues that the Taliban captured Afghanistan again. There are many other issues, but these are the very essential issues. So you've painted a very clear picture there. Thank you. I think one thing I want to pick up um, on from what what you said at the start of your answer there is the power of storytelling. You talked about the US and its allies not really understanding the psychology of the people they were negotiating with which led them to approach their negotiations through their own established habits of visualizing the conflict past and present in Afghanistan. That's actually something that we've talked about with another of our podcast guests, Mike Martin, how Western allies came to the war in Afghanistan and and subsequently to these negotiations with quite fixed but incomplete or insufficiently nuanced understanding of how different forces were likely to respond and operate. And you also mentioned the storytelling which the Taliban themselves have been doing, you know, repeatedly defeating superpowers over decades of conflict, a story which, of course, exaggerates reality, but actually has a huge impact on shaping how members of the Taliban and others think and feel and behave. And really, this is exactly what the Visualising War Project studies, the very complex relationship between storytelling and reality. I suppose that, you know, there's a lot of disconnect Um, between the stories that we tell, both US stories, Taliban stories, or the stories that we believe about conflict um, and the reality of how things have actually played out. But there is also a a strong feedback loop between narrative and reality. So the stories that people tell actually do tragically go on to shape mindsets and behaviours and really shape what happens next. So it's really interesting to hear you bringing that out a bit. I wonder if we can now just think a little bit about the next few weeks and months. We know lots of people are still trying to leave, desperate to leave. You've talked about the brain drain that's going on with doctors, journalists, lawyers, activists, university staff and many others leaving the country. What impact do you think that will have? What's happening to the economy? How difficult is it for people to find or pay for basic necessities? In a nutshell, what do you think people in Afghanistan are most worried about right now as they look ahead to the next few weeks and months? And do you see any grounds for hope alongside fear in terms of what the Taliban does next and the formation of a new government? The Afghans who had their dreams, intentions and aspirations, they have already buried their dreams. And now people don't have any dream, any aspiration, any uh, any hope of life. People are in shock. They, they lost everything. They even lost the, the right to life. 1.5 million people lost their jobs. So now there is no hope. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, the second scenario is that there is still the negotiation is uh, going on among the Taliban and uh, ex-presidents of Afghanistan, Hamid Karzai, Abdullah Abdullah, and Gulbadin Hikmatyar. These Afghan leaders like uh, Abdullah Abdullah and uh, Hamid Karzai, they are trying to convince the Taliban to sustain the current system. On the other side, the Taliban wants a complete monopoly over the power. In that case, if the Taliban refuse to make an inclusive government consisting on the leaders of all ethnicities, all political parties, factions, tribal elders, and the prominent politicians of the Ashraf Ghani's administrations, if they include these people in their next government, there still be some possibility of optimism. Mm-hmm. If they make their own government, then there will be a civil war. There will be just tragedies. There will be millions of refugees. And Afghanistan will be dismantled again in that civil war. Mm-hmm. So the, the negotiations are already going on in Kabul. Th- that negotiation, until now, it is failed. They didn't make any consensus on the major issues of Afghanistan because the Taliban on one side they want complete monopoly on the other side they want to make a new theoretical system in Afghanistan because the Taliban don't have any support in the people the people saw just their destructions their blasts their target killing their brutalities their barbarism in the past three decades they didn't make a single university a single hospital a single road a single institutions in Afghanistan during their previous regime. So now they know they don't have any support in the people. They don't want any election in Afghanistan because they they cannot win a single provincial assembly seat. They cannot win a single seat of the National Assembly and the, the seat of the Senate of Afghanistan. In that case, the Taliban don't have any role in the future of Afghanistan. Currently, the Taliban want to capture the complete power of Afghan state. Mm. On the other hand, the Afghans demand from the Taliban that please sustain the current democratic system. The, the Afghans demand from the Taliban that we want elected member in Afghanistan and the Senate and the National Assembly of Afghanistan should exercise the policy-making power, the decision-making power of Afghanistan. There is a huge tussle between Afghans and the Taliban. They agreed to make an inclusive government and accept the demands of 40 million Afghans to sustain the current system. If they don't make an inclusive government, there will be any possibility to prevent another catastrophe in Afghanistan. In the, if they decide to deprive 1.5 million people that work in the previous administration, they deprive these people from the job, there will be a huge resistance in every part of Afghanistan. Already there is a huge resistance underway and the whole of Afghans will start fighting against the Taliban in that scenario. And do you think it is inevitable that the resistance will take the form of fighting? Do you think there are other forms of resistance that will be at all effective? Already the people are demanding from the Taliban by uh, social media, by, by negotiating team to, to pressurize the Taliban to accept the demand what Afghans want, if they completely reject the demands of the Afghans, then there will be a violent resistance. And until now, a peaceful resistance is already going on. There are critics, there are demands, there are protests. Even on the second day of the Taliban government, the the women in Kabul protested in various streets of Kabul. In the third day of their regime, 
in the seven big cities of Afghanistan, thousands of people protested against the Taliban. Already there are peaceful demonstrations are going on in Afghanistan, but if the Taliban completely reject their demands, then there will be a violent resistance. Afghans have very liberal and democratic history. Even the women of Afghanistan has got the right to vote before the women of the U.S. Mm. The women of the U.S. got the right to vote in 1919. Mm. And the women had the right to vote before them. Yeah. And uh, you see the pictures of the Kabul universities in the 90s, 50s, and 60s. You will be astonished. There, there were no difference between the U.K., France, Germany, U.S., and Kabul. Thank you for reminding us there that women's rights, democratic institutions, widespread access to education and so on have long been a part of Afghanistan's history. I think some of the storytelling that I've seen in the media in recent days has implied that it's only been in the past 10 or 20 years and with the support of international interventions that Afghanistan has functioned democratically. But that is a misleading and very Western habit of visualizing Afghan history and the role that the West has played in it. Just in terms of what's going on now, as you've just set things out, it's a very tense time, waiting to see if the Taliban will go in for any kind of power sharing and what the repercussions might be if they don't. Looking ahead, let's say a year from now, how optimistic or pessimistic do you feel about Afghanistan's future? A lot of political analysts claim that uh, the Taliban has changed. Uh, but what we are saying that is untrue. Yes, their negotiating team who saw the world, uh, who are, they are visiting the capitals of China, Russia, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and other capital of the world, they saw the world, they saw the civilization, they saw humanity, and their mind has changed. But on the other side, there's 50 to 60,000 fighters who fought during the last two decades, who lived just in the mountains of Afghanistan. They are just brutalized and they mm-hmm. learned new techniques of viciousness and cruelties. And they are cruel. This time they are more cruel than the previous time. Mm-hmm. So now I think there is little optimism because they are saying that they deputed to superpower in the last three decades and now they are not accepting the demand of the Afghans. It is their mentality. In that situation, in that scenario, there will be another war if they completely refuse the demands of Afghans, if they impose a new and extreme regime of Afghans, there will be a huge resistance of the human history. War will dismantle the Afghans institutions and cities once again. Tens of thousands of Afghans will be killed again in this war. Still, we have some hope in our heart that the negotiating team who saw the world, they will convince those Taliban who fought for the last 20 years, they they will convince them to accept the demands of Afghans. They will convince them for the democracy. They will convince them for women's rights. Then there will be peace and there will be hope. So there's a very real threat then of devastating war, but peace hinges on lots of different voices being heard and really listened to. And that brings me back to a question that we've touched on a bit already when we talked about how well or little understood the conflict in Afghanistan has been by the wider international community. In your view, whose voices have been heard in recent years and months and whose voices have not been heard? Yeah, that is a very good question. The people, those people voices heard that are not the victims of war. And those people that don't belong from Afghanistan, their voices tremendously heard. And particularly the policymakers, the journalists, the decision makers, the politicians, the political activists that don't belong from Afghanistan, the international media has given enormous courage to them. The international media provided very huge space to those people 
to those journalists, to those policy makers who never saw Afghanistan in their entire life. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the Afghans, the war victim, international media has given very little courage to them. International media never given space to the Afghan policymakers, people who were spreading the narrative Afghans, those journalists that were working and developing the peace process, and those Afghan journalists, politicians, political activists that had big knowledge mm-hmm. of Afghan history, and those people that know the, the complexities of Afghan war, the international media never given opportunities to them. Yeah, the international media given space and courage to the tragedies like the current catastrophe, which is going on on the Kabul airport. Mm-hmm. They are just covering this kind of scenario. They never covered what Afghan want. What is the understanding of Afghan? Like today, you listen to me, you question me. To my opinion was very different from the opinion of the political analysts and the journalists of the USA, UK, and other parts of the world. They are the political analysts of UK, US, and the entire world. They are saying this is the war among the ones. Mm-hmm. ones are saying this is not our war because this war made by two superpowers. And the Mujahideen was funded, was trained by the West to become America as the sole superpower of the world. The ones fought against the Taliban for 20 years, and now the international community and intentionally handed our Afghanistan to them. The, the number of the Taliban is just 50 to 60,000. On the other hand, there are 40 million Afghans. So the Afghan journalists and political analysts never heard. Mm-hmm. And I can't help wondering what difference it would have made to strategy making, policy making, to the decisions that all sorts of people in the international community took if more people, more ordinary people in Afghanistan, more people on the ground, more of the grassroots journalists, the activists, the victims of the conflict had been heard. And if international policy hadn't been based so much on the views of people at some distance from what was really going on in Afghanistan. Our understanding is very different from the understanding of the international community. In the 80s, the Afghanistan became the, the center of Cold War. That, that war was between the USSR and the US. Mm-hmm. And Afghan became the victims of that war. One million Afghan lose their life in that war. And now it is the Afghan understanding. It is the understanding of Afghans that now there is a second superpower is emerging, which is China. And the whole economists of the world, they are agreed that China will become a second superpower of the world uh, until 2030. Mm-hmm. And their whole projects, all highways are going through Afghanistan. And for containing China, it is very important for their opponents to boost war in Afghanistan because it is the only course to contain China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like the first, in the 80s, when the Afghans became the victims of war between the US and uh, USSR, and now the Afghans says that they will again, they would become uh, the victim of war between the US and China. And Afghanistan will again become the center of war between do, these great powers. So what you're saying then is that there is a sense of fear that, again, Afghanistan's fate and the fate of the 40 million people who live there will be decided by politicians and policymakers in different countries all around the world who have their own political agenda and who are not really listening to people on the ground of Afghanistan itself. Yeah, they are using Afghanistan for their interests, Mm -hmm. uh, for their goals, and some countries seek their interest in peace and Lots of countries, particularly great powers of the world, they seek their interest in war. So those who seek their interest in war, they are boosting wars. And those who seek their interest in peace, they are boosting peace. 
So now, currently, great powers want war in Afghanistan. It's shocking in many ways to hear you put it like that and, and float the possibility that some international actors might even welcome further conflict in Afghanistan, partly because it sits so at odds with the official narratives we're hearing right now from different governments around the world, and partly because for thousands of years, humans have re repeatedly described and represented war as the greatest threat of all and something to be avoided at all costs. Our last podcast touched on this, actually, because our guest, Emily Mayhew, decided to visualise war in her latest book as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, this age-old threat that we think we've been trying to fend off century after century after century. Her book looks at the very many ways in which lots of different societies and all sorts of different people, so historians, journalists, doctors, NGOs, peace activists, human rights campaigners and so on, have worked hard again and again and again to keep war at bay. But what you've just said there is a, is a stark reminder that not everyone is in the business of peace building or conflict resolution and that wars and proxy wars are often used, I suppose, as, as political tools, always, though, at great human cost. One thing uh, is very clear, and it is the responsibility of the whole United Nations member countries. The, these, the international community should pressurize the Taliban to not deprive women from their rights. The international community should pressurize the Taliban do not again invite Al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations. The international community should pressurize the Taliban to make an inclusive government in Afghanistan in order to prevent another civil war in Afghanistan. And then there will be a lot of hope in that condition. There will be no genocide of Afghan intelligentsia and there will be no war. And it is the responsibility of the international community to convince the Taliban for these commitments. Mm -hmm. It's good to end on a note of hope, however slender that hope may feel. You've talked us through the potential for catastrophe, the dismantlement of Afghanistan society, the potential journey to yet more devastating conflict and the growing humanitarian crisis. But you have also set out very clearly the, the responsibilities which politicians and policymakers all around the world have to avoid that if possible. And you've stressed something really important, I think, in our conversation. International habits of visualizing the conflict in Afghanistan have tended to be quite narrow, quite blinkered and not always well informed. And what you've stressed is that if international interventions and peace building are to succeed, we do need to hear more from voices on the ground in Afghanistan and draw on local knowledge and local understanding. This, this does chime very much with conversations we've had recently with experts on conflict resolution like Roddy Brett at the University of Bristol. He, he's one of many who stresses the need for local voices to come through and be heard. And you, of course, right now are doing what you can to make that happen. And I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to talk to me today and for helping us visualize what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. As I said at the start, at some very significant risk to your life. I, I very much hope that we're going to be able to catch up again before too long. But in the meantime, please stay safe. I'll be keeping you in my thoughts along with so many others in Afghanistan right now, those millions of people we've talked about. But just let me finish by thanking you again for talking to me today. Thank you, Elise. Thank you. And thank you also to you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you want to follow up more on what's going on in Afghanistan, I strongly recommend you to listen to a set of podcasts which have been put out in the past week by the Voices of War podcast. You can find them at www.thevoicesofwar.com. And crucially, you can hear voices from Afghanistan there, interviews with journalists, interpreters and Afghan refugees, as well as some international analysts. So do follow up on that if you're interested. As ever, you can get in touch with the Visualising War Project on social media or by emailing us directly at viswar at standrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zofia Gertin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>